1: It's very difficult to prepare an introduction for a speaker who is here to talk about her newest book, Shonda, a memoir of shame and secrecy, kind of a tell-all book. I loved this book. I found it to be so relatable for so many reasons. For example, my mother, even though she had a full-time job, still had a knipple. Now that was my grandmother's word. My mother called it mad money just so I would understand what she, what she meant. And uh, she, my, I haven't heard that word in decades at nipple, My grandfather's been gone since 1983. But friends and reviews have all said much the same thing. This book is so much about my life. And I quote, everyone who's read it so far said, this is my life. For those of you who have already read this remarkable book, You probably know just about everything, at least all of the secrets that Letty Cotton Pograben has shared. I'm not going to share any of my secrets, but I will tell you about the impact that Letty had on me. In 1971, just having graduated from the Ohio State University, (laughs) Go Bucks, Stan and I moved to the outpost of Ada, Ohio, as he was beginning law school. With nothing much to do in Ada, Ohio, we decided to get a cat and promptly named her Ms. as a nod to the new magazine. She was strong and independent and wore the name well. As an early subscriber to Ms. Magazine, I welcomed the innovative and creative feminist ideas and ideals. I attended women's seders, and then in 1977, when our daughter was born, we were so grateful to Ms. for guiding us towards a ceremony that would honor the birth of a girl, and we named her at a Rit Hane wrote, the Covenant of the Candles, mm. and an be- appropriate and beautiful way to bless and be thankful for the gift of welcoming a daughter into the Jewish community. So, it was my parents' decision for me not to have a bat mitzvah, even though I had the education and training and years of religious school. So as an adult in the early 80s, when bat mitzvah age girls began to participate on Shabbat morning at my synagogue in a role similar to that of bar mitzvahs, I said to myself, I want to do this. When I approached the rabbi, he discouraged me from pursuing this endeavor, but I fought for and won the right to read Torah and lead Shabbat services. My journey was inspired by Letty and other women who led the way to egalitarianism in the conservative movement. And I thank you. And now it would certainly be Ashanda if I didn't formally introduce our guest. (laughs) Letty Cottonpogerbin, a writer, activist, and national lecturer, is a founding editor of Ms. Magazine and the author of 12 books. Her works include. The Jewish feminist classic Deborah Golda and Me, being Female and Jewish in America, the novel Single Jewish Male Seeking Soulmate, and of course her latest title, Shonda, A Memoir of Shame and Secrecy, published this year by Postal Press. She was also the editorial consultant on Marla Thomas's acclaimed children book, Free to Be, You and Me. And this is so timely because. In today's New York Times, there was an opinion piece and Letty was quoted in the opinion piece because free to be you and me is celebrating its 50th anniversary. So we're, we're happy you're here on a lot of that. Ms. Pogartman's articles have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Washington Post, Huffington Post, Tablet, The Forward, and many other periodicals of Jewish interest. She's a co-founder of the National Women's Political Caucus, the UJA Task Force on Women, And the Ms. Foundation for Women, and is a past president of the Authors Guild and of Americans for Peace Now. She currently serves on the board of the Brandeis University Women's and Gender Studies Program and performed past board service for the Women's Studies and Religion Program at the Harvard Divinity School. Ms. Pokerbin honors include a Yale University Pointer Fellowship in Journalism, a Matrix Award for Excellence in Communication and the Arts. And an Emmy Award for her work on Free to Be You and Me. I knew all the songs. Her writing and activism have also been honored by dozens of Jewish organizations and synagogues. Letty Cotton-Pokerbin lives with her husband in New York City and Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. She, the couple has three children and six grandchildren. Thank you, Letty, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you.
2: I'm on my own. (laughs) We're always. Oh, my opening statement. Well, my opening statement is that the way one normally responds to such a stellar introduction is with humility. But I take my cue from Gold to my ear and said, "Don't be humble. You're not that (laughs) great." So let's talk.
0: I am so happy to talk with you about this amazing book, which you could get out there or at dessert, and there'll be a book signing at the end. I'm gonna have the chance to ask a few questions and start the conversation. Friends on Zoom, you can send in your questions. I'm getting text up here, and then we'll have the chance to open it up on the floor as well. So to start with, um, the first and most famous sentence from Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, happy families are all alike, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So most families have secrets. Why did you decide to share your own family secrets in A Memoir of Shame and Secrecy?
2: Well, uh, it started with my realization that um, five years ago that I was gonna turn 80, I'm 78 five years ago. And if I was ever gonna write the truth about my life. I had better start now and I better do it in the form of a memoir and it better amount to something. It better make sense. It better make sense for me and for anyone who who follows my writing or who cares about Jews or cares about feminism or cares about Israel and all the things I'm passionate about. And uh, I started writing and then it became very clear to me that I was writing about One secret after another, and how it impacted me. That's a proper verb. um, And how it related to the immigrant generation. It had a theme. And the theme is Jews wanting to be perfect when they got here. They wanted to assimilate. It wasn't like a lot of the more recent immigrants who retain their culture very proudly and speak their language and sometimes really press the. Collective to accept them as whatever their culture is, Jews of my parents' generation want to be real Americans. And as I went through these stories in my mind, um, my mother's story just kept standing out as a kind of guidepost for me. Why I became a feminist was to not have a life like my mother did, hiding who she truly was, feeling she had to conform. Valuing always to my father, being put on an allowance, being ashamed of being the only graduate of the eighth grade, of having to drop out of um, school in order to go to work in a sewing machine factory to help support her, her family. Seven children on my mother's side, seven children on my father's side, and one of 25 cousins. There are a lot of secrets when you have that much of a Jewish family.
0: Why why do Jews hide and how has this changed over the decades?
2: Um, you probably can answer why Jews <laughs> hide better than I can. I, I mean, I am a student of Judaism, a lifelong student of Judaism. I was a bat mitzvah one of the first in conservative Judaism in 1952 and I went to Hebrew school forever <laughs> and graduated from Hebrew high school and I went to the yeshiva of Central Queens. But everything I'd say, is going to be sorry for the expression trumped by your knowledge so i hope you'll you'll say <laughs> um, hiddenness is baked into our legacy god hides god hides um hester, Panin, hester Panin, the, the 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 hiddenness of god hester's name is is hidden um jacob was fooled because um Leah was behind the veil and he meant to marry, thought he was marrying Rachel. Think of how much masking and hiding we grew up with and took for granted. And in our history, Jews hid in the Inquisition by converting, but yet practicing and carrying our ceremonies and rituals in secret. They're called secret Jews. They're called Moranos, which is a more insulting term. Um, we hid when it was necessary. There is good hiddenness, there is survival hiddenness. The reason that we exist today is many of us because um, during the Holocaust, we hid or were hidden, maybe by a righteous gentile in a haylot somewhere, maybe behind a cabinet, maybe behind a false passport. Not all hiddenness is bad. What's really uh, deleterious and the hiddenness that masks who you really are, because you feel you're not good enough. And too many of views of my parents' generation and mine, hopefully not my children's or grandchildren's, thought they weren't good enough, felt they didn't measure up, wanted to be real Americans. My mother used to clip recipes from the Ladies' Home Journal because she didn't want to only cook stuffed cabbage, you know, and 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 strudel, and, uh, and she succeeded. She learned to make you know
0: jello with acid. Little, <laughs> and, and I would rather have strudel, so I love you brought up the positive side of hiding. Um, that not everything needs to be public. In fact, in addition to Hester punning I mean the notion that God hides God's self, so too. Ma that was so beautiful and good about Jacob's tents, according to the rabbis, is that the tents were staggered so that they couldn't see into each other's tents. It's an ethic of privacy. It's that, um, that's kind of the rabbinic origin of that phrase, uh, how they explain it. And so how did you decide for yourself um, that holding up the ethic of privacy and holding up the ethic of destigmatizing yeah. That which has brought shame through hiddenness. What right. to share and what to keep private. How did you balance that?
2: Uh, first of all, I asked permission of everyone I wrote about. My parents' generation was all gone, so I have I asked all my cousins who were still alive. And my cousins were really pleased that I was writing all this and added to it. They I inter- ended up interviewing them. They said, but you don't know the one about, you know? Did you know that? And the stuff that came out was buttressed when my granddaughter Molly, my daughter Abigail, some of you may know and have read her work, my, my daughter Abigail's daughter Molly was writing a, a biography of me for a Yale class that she was taking on biography writing. And um, the quid pro quo was that I had to keep my hands off, no matter what she found. I Promised her I would never tell. I would never stop her. I would never edit her. So in the process of doing all her research, she went to my archive. She looked at my files. She read all my books. She's a really prodigious scholar. <laughs> she says to me when she comes to my study in New York, and she said, "Where's the childhood stuff? I've seen all the you know adult and professional stuff. But where's anything left over from your childhood?" And I pointed to a cabinet, a very deep cabinet, <laughs> in which I sort of wrote it. And uh, she kind of pulled out uh, my little diaries, you know, teenage diaries with a lot and key because we had so much to hide <laughs> in those years. And then uh, I, looked, she said, Look down, and what else is going to be? I pulled out a plastic shopping bag. And I remember why it's there. Um, my sister had given it to me. I have a sister 14 years older than myself, had a sister. And when she was dying, she gave me this shot in bed. And she said, I found this in our mother's closet in 1955 when our mother died. And I'm giving it to you and someday you may want. You may be interested in what's in there. Well, my sister was dying. I knew she was dying. She planned her death and she was about to go into the face so you don't just stop eating, but you stop drinking. So I knew this was our last meeting together. And when I got, she was in New Massachusetts. And when I got on a salad to go back to New York, I just was weeping and, and so broken up about knowing that this was the last time I'd seen my sister. that I never reached into the bag, which is the humongous shopping bag, overstuffed stuff with papers and documents and stuff. And when I got home, um, I just didn't have the co-op, the strength, to, to even sample it. Um, and so I shoved it in there. I said, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And then my sister died three days later, and I never got to it. And Molly, my granddaughter, said, Let, let's pull that out. And when she saw that it was all letters that were 80 and 85 years old, she wasn't interested. She was interested in me. I was nowhere around. I, however, had to paper her because I'm writing a memoir. And there are a lot of blanks, despite my cousin's testimonies. And I upended on my dining room table, and out comes evidence. I guess you have to say a remarkable, uh, a load of golden, you know, for a for or inspiring, uh, original materials that testify to my parents' misery, to my mother's secrets, to what my mother did to lie and. And, um invent in order to survive as a as a divorced woman, a major in the 1920s. Um and she passed herself off as a single woman with no child when she was a, a divorced woman with a daughter, my 14 year older than myself sister. So that hits with way too much. I Yeah.
0: Love your yeah. <laughs> so picking up on that story, one of, the, one of the stories I remember, excuse me if I push the details, you'll correct me, is uh, I think it was their twenty, your parents' twentieth anniversary, which was actually their eleventh anniversary. Exactly. And um, that they have been the it, but I told you this other version, and that a cousin's kind of spilled the beans to you, and it's kind of a guess. Yeah. And the gas moment of oh my goodness, my parents lied to me in such a big way. How did those kind of gasp moments affect you, and affect your life, and and um, and your thinking, your relationship, and your thinking of your own identity?
2: I think the moment um, discovering that my parents were liars made me number one a writer, and number two a feminist. A writer because I never trusted surfaces ever again. My parents had
1: created
2: a Temkin village, a masquerade of being a long married couple. They claimed they were married in 1923 in order to cover the fact that my sister was born in 1925. My father said he got there when they got married in 1937. So, ten years after their divorces, each of them were divorced the same year from other people. Ten years later, they married each other. My both parents, and they decide when they move from the Bronx to Queens, which is like you know moving us moving to Belgium. <laughs> they they started with what my mother called a clean slate. She, my mother loved a clean slate, um, and they presented themselves to the Jewish community as a well married couple. Oh, how long have you been married? got out in 1923. Oh well how many and many are so you know 14 years apart. Uh, and my mother would say well we tried tried hard for 14 years. <laughs> but we didn't, God didn't bless us until we got money was my chapter. I thought, so I mean this construct was so elaborate that my mother any of you who've read it you know my mother cut out the picture of her former husband from a big family photo of a family wedding of my mother's brother. She cut out that picture and had a photo studio paste in a picture of my father. She was very creative. She's an artist. She worked as a a sewing machine operator. But then she worked her way up to become a designer. And she was really kind of... Working for Hattie Carnegie, I don't know who she was, but she was like the Hattie, the um, Donna Cameron of her era. And my mother, um, you know, couldn't face what had happened to her, the Shonda, the, the, the scandal of being a divorced woman, because she had been an abused one. Worse yet, to put it in semi British terms, worse yet. She had been abused and Everyone knew that Jewish men don't hit their wives. Just like everyone knew that there were no Jewish homosexuals and there were no Jewish alcoholics, of course, because we had to believe that about ourselves. It was it was part of the beautiful mythology uh, of, our, of our heritage and of our sense of self. And my mother had it in spades and she told me, molded herself to sit the image of perfection that she wished she'd been born
0: into well. Wow. So the types of things that were shunned in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, many of them are not shunned anymore, right? And mm-hmm. you touched on some of them. So look, what, what are you hoping the stories will push us to think about today?
2: Yeah, well, the reason I say it made me into a feminist, obviously it made me into a writer because writers can ask a lot of questions, we peel the onion, we don't just take things at face value. We do a lot of research, so that suited somebody who was duped by her parents. Um, It made me a feminist because I saw that sex roles, and you know, feminism isn't just about relieving women of sex roles, stereotypes and and, and sexual uh, um, givens or, or requirements. It's about relieving men of theirs as well. And so it was so clear that my parents were performing their sex roles. My mother was be, being demure and, and being secondary and acting inferiority. She was, had a great 8, grade education, but she was much better read than my father. My father read Talmud and my father read law books. He was a 1923 graduate of NYU Lawson. Um, my mother read everything. My father's politics were entirely Zionist. Free state, he was working, you know, for the yeshuv, he was, you know, the post-state, he was making the desert plume, he was raising money for, first the agun or whoever, and the haganah, and and then, um, obviously, for anything that the state needed. That, that was my father's politics, and my mother's politics was everything else. So she kept track of who our assemblyman was, you know, so it was always a man. Um, and she knew the war was coming long well before my father did. Um now I have to remember what you asked me.
0: I'm 80. So, I, so <laughs> do I. <Okay>. So <laughs> do I. You are 40 <or> something. <laughs> so um yeah, that's very powerful. That's, uh, I wonder. I know this, it's what do I hope this accomplished? So I
2: hope that this testifies to the absurdity of sex. And the and the destructiveness of them and the way they destroyed a real person. My mother gave up, became a designer for Hattie Carnegie and gave up the job because in the 1940s, in the forties yeah, and 50s, a successful Jewish man did not have a woman who worked outside the home. It didn't reflect well on his masculinity. A man was supposed to be able to provide for his family. And, um, you know, if my mother had to go out to work, what would people think? What would people think was could have been on a pillow, you know, or then in my house? Because I was constantly going, oh, you we can't wear that, what would people think? And who were people? Mostly it was the Shonda that the going Mostly it was a judgment of us as a people. Because when we have a Shonda, it reflects not just on me, Parents, and my extended family, but on the Jewish people, even on our God, Bilu HaShem, that's the creation of God's name. If I am a bad girl, if I am not a good Jewish, nice
0: Jewish girl,
2: that's how I was raised.
0: It, it might be hard for some young Jews to understand exactly what's happening because we live in an era of oversharing on social media. How the is. idea that what things were shared. I want to read from page, um, one of your one of your pages here. that says. Likewise, social media rampant paper sharing, not just the people's career crises or honeymoon itineraries, but also their sexual fantasies, prenatal ultrasounds, anxiety meds, and gender reassignment surgery makes it hard for millennials and Gen Xers to understand how sacrosanct privacy once was. So let me contextualize the world in which I grew up. There was no interest, excuse me, no internet, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram, no cyberbullying, cancel culture, sexting, or trolling, nor was it possible for a person to search for and find an online archive of another person's most intimate, cringeworthy bloopers, vendors, and bad trips. In my youth, all it took to destroy one's good name was a Shanda, the Yiddish word for shame, scandal, and disgrace. And I think that contextualization is so important because it's easy to forget what that era was like. And so do you do you see
2: culture is a shanda. Is that where it is no.
0: so, 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 so Well, I don't know how many of you follow what cancel culture has
2: actually done. I mean, it has ruined people's lives. It has, you know, it has uh diminished the, the stature of people, it has uh, made people lose their jobs. Um it, 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 it's a it's a it's a terrible kind of mark, it's like an A on your uh, on Hester Prince's chest, you know, to be canceled by those who have power over you or those who are groups opposed to your group or opposed to your identity, the identity you choose. A good example is that the um, author of the um, Harry Potter series, her name is escaping me. Rowling. Yeah, well, J.K. Rowling was canceled because she had a, what I consider a reasonable objection to the fact that the word woman is disappearing because uh, you have to say pregnant people, things like that. That you have to say pregnant people. Uh, And as somebody who has worked 50 years to get women recognized in our specificity, I sometimes have trouble with the fact that we're losing the word woman. That in fact, you know, there are women's issues still that don't apply to all people, even even to trans women who didn't grow up the way we, we who were born women, did in terms of what was done to us or what was said about us or how we were treated. So there are differences that have to be acknowledged, it seems to me. And J.K. Rowling, because she made that one statement, has been canceled. There have been boycotts against her books. There have been all sorts of um, publications that have resulted, uh, articles that have resulted. that's that's kind of the effect that the Shanda had. Uh, for example, illness in our community. Cancer in the Jewish world is still a, a, a C-word. C it's not an easy thing to You have cancer in the family or mental illness in the family. Partly because you want to be not be seen as sick. I, mean, I know that. I had breast cancer. I reported about other medical issues I've had. They're they're It is a tendency to kind of mark you once you're known to have an illness and that you don't want to be portrayed in the eyes of your society and your friends as somebody who might be dying, you know, put it that way. I get it, but in Jewish life, it's also about the shirah. It's also about making the match. People don't want to make a match if there's cancer in your family or mental illness in your family and they dissuade their children or they make a big fuss of that. So there's a price to pay or has been and still is in many Jewish communities. I, I have many Orthodox friends and I know in the Orthodox world it's a very big deal and one keeps that very prior. Right. So it gets extremely
0: complicated
2: once you really get into defining the refinements of the shangha.
0: So Jews can't come together and not talk about anti-Semitism, especially with where there's people like Kanye, Kanye out there doing the things, uh, horrible things that are happening and being said uh, And um and I wonder like American Jews have made it, by and large, we've made it but, uh, a tremendous success story as immigrants. And yet that very success is used against us, um, you know, to say we can you know control the world and control Washington or Hollywood in other cases. And um and so we are ashamed when Bernie Adolf is on the cover um, or other Jews who do horrible things are on the cover of the newspaper as if we're still at tremendous uh, risk every time that emerges, we're at risk. So how how do you think we should, in in an era of rising anti-Semitism, how do you think we should relate to kind of how Jews are portrayed in the public public discourse? Yeah, it's been
2: pretty shocking to me how many Jews are named in the Me Too um, campaign and men who've owned up. So we know it's not just accusations, you know, people would like to dismiss and say, well, there's a woman spurned or a woman who wanted, really wanted to sleep with them because it'll help her career. And then, of course, it's corroborated by many, many who have uh, contemporaneous, you know, uh, expression of what happens to them. And then it's clearly that Jews have done this. Jews, Jewish men have done this. Jewish judges, you know, Jewish opera conductors, Jewish writers of great repute, the kind of people I say in in the book, the kind of men that, you know, my parents wanted me to marry, you know, uh, or the kind of men that maybe your parents wanted you to be if you were a man. And look what they've done. So if we're going to claim this disproportionate number of Nobel Prize winners, which we do regularly, and we're right about it. It's something like 29% of all Nobel Prize winners are, are Jewish and we are 0. 0.0002 of the world population and 2% of the American population. So that's pretty stunning. And we have a right to have a little bit of Jewish exceptionalism in our blood. But then we have to take responsibility for mayor. And we have to take responsibility for ones. What,
0: what does it look like to take responsibility?
2: It, it means acknowledging, and trying not to get Judaism in the picture. These are men like other men, just like my mother was abused by a man like other men, even though he's Jewish. Um, the fact is that these are people who are grown up in a society in which masculinity is defined by dominance. I mean, we can go into all the theoretical underpinnings of what this you know, incredible phrase is about. Um, for me, it's the it's the double whammy of if we say, um, how dare Kanye West or now Ye say this, and then somebody punishes him, it shows that we have power. So we get it coming and going. We get the anti-Semitism, we're supposed to swallow that because if we object and something happens, it's because Jews have power. What do you do? I think you still object. I think you you don't, because now it's become normalized to say these are completely off the wall things. I mean, this Marjorie Taylor Green with the with the Jewish, I mean, we should only have control over some space, have machines. I mean, we could, you know, cure poverty or illness or something. He had that kind of power. With all the Jewish doctors, he had to name a Jewish doctor. You know, he had to make much of the fact that we have Jewish doctors. Without Jewish doctors, a lot of people would be dead, to put it plainly. So we have to own our exceptionalism, the good things about our culture, our heritage, our collective our collective behavior. I know that I, I was in a Black Jewish uh, uh, dialogue group for 10 years. We met once a month, every Tuesday for 10 years. And over time, we got more and more honest with each other about each other's community. And one of the things that Black women and one of the Black women admitted is the incredible jealousy that Black leaders have for the philanthropic gene that we seem to have, how we put out for each other, how we, even if we disagree, we support and we find ways to rally around each other and that they they fault themselves for not being able to do that. They have so much more of African Americans than of us. And and they have the capacity to you know, rally and they're full of great ideas and great energy, but somehow or other they don't have that tradition that we do. And they're trying to figure it out. And in our group we we were honest about that that sort of thing. You know? We were honest about our friends. These the the Jewish the Jew, Jewish members of the group. You learn a lot by listening. I think you you you're a great listener. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> yeah.
0: You can tell my family that. Yeah. Um, is, so. Um, what was it like for you and Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan to be Jews in as in the feminist movement in the sixties? And did you experience anti-Semitism in that feminist space as well? I, I wrote a
2: piece called "Anti-Semitism in the Women's Movement." It, it took up eight pages of Ms. Magazine in nine in nineteen eighty-two. Yeah, that's a lot of pages. It's a lot of pages. Eight pages in a, in a mass magazine, um, in which I. I sadly reported on, on some almost a year's worth of interviews of Jewish feminists all over the country and what, what they had experienced, and sadly, in the movement, which after all is imagining a perfectible future, trying to improve on the habits of other people, women in particular, and yet, and yet. And there were instances, I'll just give you one of them, is when a conference was being planned, and one member of the planning committee said, Oh, we can't do it, and it's version. And they said, Well, we can't, we can't bend things just for one minority you know. And and the Jewish woman had to make a you know a of a big deal out of this, and and had to ex- explain this <laughs> is you know, one of the holiest days of our year. Would you have a a, a conference on Easter? Would you have a conference on Christmas? I mean, we it took an argument. So, uh, and very often other other ethnic and racial groups were given considerations that Jews weren't because precisely what you said, that we are assumed to have made it. Well, a lot of us have made it, but we have Jewish poverty, up it's hidden, it's hidden because Jewish poverty is a shanda to us in our community. You know, it's the problem that has no name. We raise money, but we don't want, want any any publicity about it because we, are, you know, we have faith. We're saving faith. We have an image. It's it's bad sometimes, but it's mostly something we're proud of. But we have Jewish poverty, and we have Jewish mental illness, and we have you know Jews who don't have PhDs, and we have all that everybody else.
0: Who's without PhD? So, you know, um, this is kind of um, personal for you. But number one, you said I could ask personal questions. I I did. And number two, it was in the New York Times. And so, (laughs) once it's in the New York Times, I think you could hear it. So, it said over here in your book review, uh, and so many great book reviews out there. Uh, First, Pokerman discloses her own. She was diagnosed several years ago with a benign brain tumor and didn't tell anyone. Contemplating her motivations for doing so, she did, after all, write a whole book about surviving breast cancer. Moghermin divulges her fears that the tumor might compromise her intellectually. The brain, she writes, is not just the body's neurological control panel, but also the beating heart of the Jewish soul. (laughs) Given your work and your writing, what was kind of going through your heart and your soul when you when you did feel and you wanted to keep it private, was that a human impulse? Was that based upon your upbringing of the shanda? Um, and what what really kind of moved uh, you to know, come? Well, of- I don't know how other
2: people would feel about having a brain tumor and talking about it. I, I don't think anyone would be very comfortable. What I was interrogating in myself is why was I. Doing that about the brain tumor when I had written a book about having a having breast cancer. And the breast cancer was potentially fatal. And the brain tumor was like a pimple. I mean, not pimple, bleeding, but I mean it was something that just was a little growth and it got taken out. That was the end of it. A benign brain tumor. But you hear brain and tumor in the same sentence. You don't stop and and, and calculate. Wait a minute, what does she mean? What's happening? You hear brain tumor, and you look at the person differently. You pity, you have compassion, you worry, you love the person. Well, a whole bunch of things start happening, and everything kind of muddles. Mm. And I didn't want that. I didn't want that. I wrote a book about how to be called how to be a friend to a friend who's sick. Because when I had the breast cancer, I was quite surprised by the number of people who did not know how to treat me. They didn't know how to respond. They were awkward. They didn't know what to say. They said ridiculous things. You know, well, at least you're married. <laughs> if I had to have a mastectomy, at least I'm married. That's what I, mean. I don't have to date with a mastectomy. I mean, it was insane. So I wrote a book about, you know, how, how unusual it was for me to not be well served by my friends. And I wanted to understand what's going on here with people and illness and we want to help when we can't or we mess up or we make a mess of of course than a mess of it but comes the brain tumor I wanted to figure out because I'm figuring out my life I'm approaching 80 I have, to, I have to have puzzles solved at least that's the kind of person I am so I realized that I was raised with the
0: Oh, my God, everybody is eating that. That's <laughs> tea.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, I was raised to believe that I don't have to be beautiful, which I never was, but I don't have to be beautiful if I'm smart. A, a girl who's smart will always get by. Something you'll always get by. And you'll always you'll find a man who wants a smart, smart woman at his side or, or a little beneath him. <laughs> um, um, and for a man, you know, you, you may be discriminated against, you may suffer worse against but if you're smart, you'll find a way. You know, in other words, if we're smart, we'll survive, which we have, which we have. And We have figured out how to survive an adversity. But my brain was all that my thing we really were was interested in. And you know. I write about how my father and my mother had an argument every night after dinner. After she produced us the nicest, bestest dinner she possibly could to please him, and he would get up from the table and he would go to the Jamaica Tour Center to one of his meetings about Israel. He was, you know, he was the president of this and that, that and the other organization, the ZOA when it was a reasonable organization, um, you know. American Jewish Congress with when it was a uh, reasonable, organization, American Jewish Committee. Uh, he was the head of Benebre Men in in, um, in Queens.
0: In Queens,
2: um, this was my father who got up every night more and left the dinner table. But if I would ask him a legal question or a question or a Talmudic uh, question, he would stay. I could keep him at the table. So that was proof that the brain was what did it. I could keep my father at the table if I engaged him intellectually. I, I thanked my father because he took me seriously. And then Brandeis University made me whatever intellectual capacity I've had was developed, I think, there. <laughs> um, so when I had the brain tumor, and I realized how people hear brain and tumor, um, I just said, I can't, do, I can't let this out. It will mock me. Nobody will give me writing assignments. You know, nobody will believe that I'll be here next year at this time. I know two people who died of brain uh, brain cancer 18 months after they were diagnosed, 18 months exactly for both of them. And I just didn't want to have to deal with it and have those conversations and explain to everybody, No. It, it's a, it was a tumor and it's out and it wasn't benign and it's not malignant and it's, I didn't want to have those. And then I realized I'm writing a book about shame and secrecy. How can I just hide this one thing? How do I justify hiding something now so crucial to me in terms of my identity and that I got through it and thank and God everything's fun. if I don't admit it. But I was so scared and I was really Exposed in the worst way I've ever felt, when I thought about writing about it. And then I I took the whole issue to my rose hoders group. And uh, rose is a first of the month group that has supposedly been dedicated to women. I don't know how much that is in, in the general course of what's dedicated to other to men. But um, my rose hoders group, uh, I asked, "And let's can we talk about shame and secrecy?" And I said, "I'm going to read you a draft of." of a chapter I'm afraid to publish, and uh, I did, and I made so clear in that chapter, you'll see it, you'll see it, it's the first chapter, that this was a benign tumor. it wasn't cancer, it's not malignant, it It was taken out, it's done, it's over, and when I got home from that night's meeting, there was an email from one of our members happens to be Blue Greenberg. She's the only one I asked permission if I could identify her it's in my group, and she said, "I just feel so bad that we weren't there for you when you had brain cancer." Uh, they don't hear it. They don't hear benign. They hear brain and tumor. Yeah.
0: So I was right about it, but I didn't anyway. So it. So has it been? It, it, it's been morally important to you to do this work, but has it hasn't been joyful? You you write in in chapter fifty two a secret free life. I'm convinced that happiness lies in a secret free life, and and you conclude I just want mine to be the last generation of Jews from the height of That doesn't complete your theory of happiness in the world, but it is a pretty definitive sentence. I'm convinced that happiness lies in a secret free life. In what way do you think transparency, disclosure, this type of sharing actually um, is not only liberating, but but joyful? Yeah,
2: um, I really, I, if you buy the book, I will describe it to each of you with your name and the words wishing you a secret free life. Because after I wrote this book, I felt like a bubble. I felt so light, so light. Um, and I know somebody who has just revealed her unhappiness in her marriage and has separated. She feels so light. She's just she's been hiding the fact that she's been miserable and she's afraid to be divorced. She doesn't want to be divorced. She's a Jewish woman who does not want to be a divorcee. Because it's still a different thing for any, not just Jewish women, obviously. So the, the lightness that comes when you relieve the baggage and the person who really spoke to me most seriously about that, I don't mean to drop a name, but he's, I'm dropping a friend's name. He's been a friend for 50 years, Alan Alda, who announced on national television that he had Parkinson's. And I called him up, I said, I've done this so a while, was still writing, and I hadn't I decided to actually write it. And I said to him, How did you, why did you do this on television? He said, Because I couldn't carry it anymore. It was too heavy. And I knew somebody would find out, And then a gossip columnist would make of it what he or she would. And I want to control the story. And that made so much sense to me. I want to control the story. It's my life. I want to control the story. Now, I'll tell you something else that you gain from a secret free life. You don't hide from others. What they need to hear is not a fact. Because you tell it. I'll give you the example, like my, my um, well, now that I've told you all about this, about the illness, I hope that you'll somehow rather find a way to lighten the load if you're carrying it. But I'll tell you that in my family, the original sinner, in terms of Shonda, was like my maternal grandmother, Jenny, who was, if you if you've seen Fiddler on the roof, you know her story. She was betrothed to an older man, Laser Wolf, I think of laser wolf. And she was in love with model Consoil, the tailor, who was my grandfather, eventually my grandfather. And so she was not only betrothed, she was married to the laser wolf guy. And when she was in the bridal chamber and he was off getting his clothes arranged or whatever, she tied together the bed sheets and jumped out the window of an inn that they were staying in in Philippines, which at that time was in Hungary, and now I think it's in Poland. And ran away. My grandmother was a runaway bride in 1898, it, and she died with this secret. I didn't learn the secret until I was in my thirties. None of my cousins knew it until then. Like we were all in our twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. It was a big spread in our cousins. If my grandmother had told us that story, she would have modeled. Transgressive female behavior in a positive way. She took control of her life. She refused to bow to the um men hug of the era, the customs of the era, where you obeyed your parents. And in 1898, she said, I'm not gonna live with a part of, of someone I don't love. Uh, the women in my family who were not, we we were none of us transgressive, we were all. Too well behaved, too caring about what other people thought, too quick to mold ourselves to some ideal, whether it was the American ideal or the Jewish ideal. And I think had my grandmother decided to live a secret, free life and told us all, it would have bequeathed us an image that could have informed our own behavior in different ways throughout our lives. Instead, my images of a Yiddish-speaking Little Jewish person, woman who spoke only Yiddish, who put her teeth in the glass at night, you know, in a, in a glass of water, who gummed um, Wonder Bread and hot milk, you know, who stood at the stove until her ankles were swollen and then put her feet in a tin bathtub to rest them. These images of my grandmother were not Wonder Woman. The person who made the bed sheets for Wonder Woman. And I never knew she existed. So a secret pre-life relieves you of a secret and also presents a model of, of somebody who followed their dream or somebody who messed up and is here to tell about it and uh, survive and flourish, or however you want to put it. Um, the stories, I don't know if you have it on your list, but the stories of my abortions are... Real case in point, Um, I had not one, but two abortions in my senior year. Uh, That was not smart, which is why I did not ever admit to the second one in print. I wrote about the first one in the New York Times because I felt that somebody had to do it. It was in the early 90s. Um, I wrote about my first abortion. I did not admit my second because I'm supposed to be a smart Jewish girl. How does a smart Jewish girl get pregnant twice? Within four months. That's not smart. So I didn't, that's what, you know, I, I I kind of shaved the truth because of some Jewish requirement to be to be smart. It was insane. Um and, I, and the second time I I had I almost killed myself. Literally, I was going to jump off either the Bronze Whitestone Bridge or the dry Road Bridge. Because I could not go back and tell my father that I was pregnant, you know, a second time. I simply couldn't, and I didn't have any money because my father believed that you shouldn't give. I, I shouldn't have money. I should be on my own. And I was 19 years old, my senior year, and I wasn't. You know, I was making money. I was working for Yitz Greenberg, the great rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who was a great hello, rabbi. But I was making like a dollar an hour. You know. And, The first abortion I had cost my father $350, which I paid every penny of. If I had known what I found out years later, I didn't go to my sister. Don't forget my mother died in 1955 when I was 15. I didn't have a mother to go to, but I didn't go to my sister who was 14 years older. I have another sister I didn't tell you about because she was a secret. I didn't go to her. I didn't go to all my aunts and all my older cousins to ask them. Do you happen know, to know an abortion doctor, or what? It what you know? Can you tell me what should I do? Because in 1959, when I was pregnant with an unwanted pregnancy, uh, the, the, the prospects for my future were I would not have graduated with my class. If I had to deliver a a child and raise a child as a single 19-year-old, I would not have, I wouldn't know where to begin. It took me a very long time to establish a career for myself. So how was I going to support somebody? My father refused to help me. Is my father going to help me? And, well, bastard child. It was untenable. Uh, When I finally did tell my sister what I had experience in my senior year. I went with my, my uh, roommate and I went to downstairs to the dorm counselor in my grand dorm. And she immediately connected me to an or- abortion underground, which seemingly seemingly just was, ha- was happening on campus under my nose. And of course, you didn't know it because nobody was telling each other. We were not telling each other what was happening to ourselves. So we all thought we were the only bad girl we knew. We were the only one terrified. Right? And finally, when I tell my sister, she said, honey, why didn't you confide in me? I said, well, you're too perfect. You know, you're a married woman with four children. How could I confide in you? Well, why didn't you have Air Rona? Aaron Roma is an outstanding Jewish woman. Why would I tell You know, she said, because we've all had abortions. I had an abortion. Mom had an abortion. I said, Mom had an abortion. Our Well it was my mom then because she was trying to her husband, her first husband was trying to get her back and he convinced her to go away for the weekend with him and she got pregnant and she had an abortion. I said, How did our mom ever find an abortion abortion doctor? She said, Grandma found one. She said, Grandma had two abortions. She had seven children. you think she was gonna have any more children? So I am almost killing myself about being a bad girl when I'm supposed to be a nice Jewish girl and my whole family could have had me. So if we don't tell the truth, those are the you know the casualties. And we never know about it. Because they're all alone with their the way we're all alone with us.
0: So just before I open it up to folks for questions, um, I just want to you know emphasize how important this this point is right here of how we're putting people at risk, that what you shared with adults and our adult culture of not sharing illness, not sharing vulnerability that we can't take care of each other. Right. And our children, when we feel that they need to keep things in the dark,
2: right. how
0: we put them at risk, even suicidal. Exactly. And how much is at stake uh, with perpetuating the culture? Yeah, I, I have it in my family. I, I was
2: writing this book and I said, like, you know, I think of one of my daughters, it's really interesting. I have found so many secrets in our family, but nobody on um, drugs or alcohol. She said, really, Mom? Oh, really, Mom? really, And then she named one of my relatives, I won't say which category relative, who was principally in prison for dealing. I had blocked her out. Why I blocked her out? Because I was raised to block this stuff. Out. I had forgotten about her. She's a first link type type relative it wasn't a distant person living somewhere else I had forgotten that she's in prison because I I couldn't absorb it you know wasn't raised to absorb that a Jewish girl could be in prison Wow
0: I have so many more questions but I want to open it up to to the folks now both on Zoom I will get it by text if you zoom your question and folks here if you raise your hand I will come to you oh, and, and, thank you
1: Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for this amazing talk. I'm a uh, psychologist in private practice. Oh, uh uh-oh. Did I say anything? No, 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 no. But I often hear from people who find out that their parents have not been open with them. And maybe you talk about this in your book, which I'm going to start tonight. Uh, were you resentful of your parents or did it cause you a problem or did you understand that it was something they had to do to present themselves to the larger community?
0: I'm just going to repeat that for our Zoom listeners in case they can't hear. Were you ultimately, uh, Kenny asks, uh, were you ultimately resentful of them or did you kind of see in the context that this is something they needed to do?
2: I think I resented them for years for it. Um, And I know it marked me because I I lost trust. I felt a loss of trust, which is a quality you want your children to have, really. Um, But in writing this book, I, I had tremendous compassion for them. I saw it on a grid so much larger than them that they had to do this, and they did it really well, and they managed to succeed, and no one in Jamaica ever knew, ever knew, and I mean, I don't know, I mean, somebody here who went to my, my synagogue, uh, but she's younger than I, and I don't think we were in the same milieu at the time, but I, I know that my parents died with a secret thing, no one ever knew they had been married before, no one ever knew my father had a daughter who he abandoned that I, you know, I, had a, I never knew I had a secret sister. Nobody knew that I had two sisters. not So they pulled it off. And only because they could not admit they'd been divorced. Think about it. Now, it's absurd. But then, think how enormous it must have been. Right. So I have compassion.
1: Thank you so much for, uh, for being here tonight. Um, so I've been reading your book and it's been fascinating to me how you talk about um, the various shanglas in your family. And it seems that uh, the impetus of a lot of them that you you write about is that shopping bag filled with the letters and the the primary documents. So I'm very curious how your children and your grandchildren who were not raised with the knowledge of any of these, of any of the shanglas that came from the shopping bag, How have they reacted to learning more about your family's history? Right.
2: Thank you for that question. Because I realized as each of them has read the book, and they, depending on where they were in school, you know, when I was published, I made the manuscript available to them. Um, But I I think they all chose to wait until the book came out. And they all um, listened or listened to it. Interesting. Which made me listen to it because um, actually one said, you've gotta listen to this. The reader is so good. You <laughs> <laughs> written right now. Uh, she's wonderful. So I I have just finished listening to it. I listened to it on the plane, actually. Um but they said, Thank you, thank you, Grandma, for writing this because now we have our history. You know, it may be a little colored by the Shonda, but it's also. An okay history. It's an okay history. It's got a lot of grit and gumption in it. You know, we're glad to know who came before. So I, I recommend it to any of you. Just sit down and write your story. Tell your story into a tape recorder. Have your child, child or grandchild put an a iPhone in front of you and just talk. Don't let all the stuff be lost. Especially the older people in the room. You are a bridge to the past. There are going to be letters for our kids to find. There are going to be LMK. That means let me know. You know and that, that, that's not a letter. That's not a letter on That's not a handwritten note. You know, what I have is a treasure chest. I hear the voices of the past to come off the page. And now, you know, if you don't feel comfortable filling a,
0: a journal, just record yourself, it takes no time at all, a little bit each day. That's before this next question, I just want to comment what we just said. Um, um, as you know, you're in great rabbinic company on um, sharing the real story. There 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 were, there was a minority of rabbis who felt we had to make the biblical figures into, saint, into saints. <laughs> um, and the ultra-Orthodox world has perpetuated that today, that you, yeah. that you can find no faults, you have to do acrobats. King David never did anything wrong, actually, right? But the majority of the majority of the commentators thought we will learn more Torah if we see the humanity of these figures. If we share their true stories, that's what it means to learn Torah. You want to learn your family? That's what it means to learn Torah. That's exactly what I
2: I, I feel about modern rights is that what we learned from our forefathers and foremothers is that you can be flawed and great. You can be flawed and performing God's plan. Um, you know, look how many liars. Look at Rebecca setting up this fake thing with, with the, uh, you know, Esau. Right. Well, cut the, the, yeah. the skin, the, the animal skin. What do you call it? As a name yeah Yeah, yeah. Uh, on, on, on Jacob's right. arm in order to get the blessing. That's bakery. That's it's a lie. It's a lie. But look, it was God's way of, you know, making something happen. God could have just made it happen. God didn't make it happen. God wanted to show us that sometimes you have to do a bad thing for a good outcome. I took that lesson from it.
1: Thank you for being here. My question is this. I've been told by a therapist or two that, In order to go against whatever your parents taught you, you had to be given permission to do it by someone. Um, It's an interesting concept and I thought a lot about it because, personally, my parents never gave me permission and so I was a good little girl like you were and all. Um, So what I want to know is who gave you permission to go against the society norms?
0: So, I'm sorry I forgot to repeat Jesse's question and others, are, um, but for this question here around who, who, who gave you permission to go against society's words?
2: Her preface to the question was that she had been told by therapists, several of them, that you have to. That it had nothing to do with you. <laughs> right. She's disavowing. Our resident psychologist is disavowing. Anyway, she's been told by therapists that before you live, Admit or a secret or some something, something like that. You don't need permission from um, someone. Well, writers just take permission. You know, they give themselves permission. And years ago, I read a line from Gertrude Stein, who was usually often impenetrable, but said, "Everyone needs someone to say yes to them. yes, 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 and on and on she went." And I realized I had to say yes to myself. First of all, I lost my mother very young. Secondly, my father was present but absent. Third, my sister was 14 years older than myself. She was in a a complete life. And though she mothered me, she wasn't there. So I had to say yes to myself throughout my life from 15 on. So it wasn't hard for me. I don't know how hard it will be for you. I don't know anyone else's life, but all I can say is, If all else fails, you have to say it to yourself. If it's good for you, maybe it's time to give yourself that permission. Thank you so much for sharing tonight. I just am wondering, was your sister a co-conspirator in this lie, and how did they convince a three-year-old or four-year-old to buy into it?
0: Was your sister a co-conspirator in this In It
2: was my sister Betty a co-conspirator. Um, my sister, Betty, was three years old when my mother was divorced from her first husband. And my mother, well, um, and, um, unbelievable things that my mother, and she never did anything out of character except this. She sent my sister to boarding school at age three. And my sister was in boarding school until age 12. She always said it was a great, the best Jewish boarding school in the country. Have you ever not had the best doctor? Mm-hmm. I am always being told this is the best boarding school. The best doctor who really was, doctor, it was Well, this was the best boarding school. And um, so my sister was there from three to twelve. My father married um my my mother, my mother, and my sister came with my mother, only my sister Betty was 12, not three. So when they moved from you know, Belgium, <laughs> when they moved from the Bronx to Queens. My sister was interrupted. if ever it comes up, we're just going to have a clean slate. We don't want to have a lot of things to explain. She's 12. Well, we're just going to say, we're just going to change one little fact. We're going to say that mom and dad were, were married in 1923. That's it. Just remember that. Married in 1923. So she colluded because she got a father. She got a father. My, my father loved her and fussed over her. He was really a good dad to her, much better dad to her than to than me in my opinion. And we always disagreed. But she was so thrilled to have a family, she would do anything. So uh, at one point I, I remember the only thing that really stuck out in my mind when I finally found out about their, their whole construct fiction is that I once found a, a dictionary in my sister's room. My sister married when I was six years old. She taught me to be when I was five. So at six years old, I find her dictionary because she taught me I should look up words if I don't know them. And on the fly leaf, it says Betty Holtzman. I said, who's Betty Holtzman? She said, oh, oh, oh. When I was in high school, I fell in love with a boy named Holtzman and I wanted to write down what my name would look like if I had." That was the one time when it almost blew the lid off. Now, when I look back on it, Holtzman was her father's name. Holtzman was my mother's first husband's name. Otherwise, my sister colluded for her own good, for her own interests. And I understood it and had compassion for her when I found
0: that. Judy uh, we uh, San Diego is lucky to have you. We're happy when we have you in Phoenix. So, uh, Here's a mic right there. Welcome back, Judy.
2: Well, interesting. Um, thank you. So happy to come. I didn't find it just for this,
1: but I'm happy to be here. Um, I, you know, I'm wondering, um, I'm a
2: child of survivors. Yeah. and uh, you know, recently, I have come to find your shopping bag uh, full of lots of secrets. And I loved what you said about the overall compassion that I had for my parents. And I'm wondering if people who are children of survivors have come to you um and
1: and have you know found out things now our parents are dead and ask them, but have you had that experience? Because yeah. my things are it's
0: deep. And it's curious to ask about a specific context um, of children of survivors and how that dynamic changes the experience, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry to catch you off. Yeah,
2: sorry. Oh
0: Thank
2: you, sorry. Um, Yes, uh, I know many children of survivors and I have known survivors myself. And I know that a lot of them paper over what happened to them, what they were forced to do, what they saw, all of it. Because some saw or traumatized by each of those categories. What happened to them? What they had to were forced to do and what they witnessed. And those who lost their families and started anew in this country or elsewhere, they were the originators of the clean slate theory. How do you live with those two realities, with the humongous huge loss, and then the fact that you have new children um the thing that i write about in the book that's a shanda to me uh, probably the worst of all shandas <laughs> are the people who blame the victims because there are Jews in this country um as i know who keep asking why did they go like lambs to the slaughter i wouldn't have done that you know how could how could Jews be so fast why didn't the men do that you know what and to me, that's an obscenity, an obscenity. So I share in the book a nightmare that I have every few years. I mean, um, I was uh, five years old at the end of the Second World War, but I was in a household where the war was very present. I was waiting for Hitler to cross through the take takeover. The Jamaica Jewish Center made, it think, at a crematorium. I mean, I was very vivid. Very vivid memories, my parents were air, air wardens. We had lights out and I had to Tim and Emmy light because I was scared of the dark, all those memories. But the idea of, of the, the content of my nightmare is my answer to the people who dare to say, why didn't they? I wouldn't have, you know? Because that's their Shonda. Their sense of Shonda is other groups wouldn't have done this. Jews did it because we were trained to be passive, we were trained to be Talmud scholars, you know, we were not we were not uh, militaristic, except now, now, in a terrible big way with this new government that's forming, but that's another subject. Mm-hmm. But I, I I feel that the, the Shanda factor should have nothing to do with the Holocaust. This is the, the, the survivors are our miracle. They they are the bravest, the most courageous. We will never know their story because they didn't tell them, because they don't want to relive them. And we don't have a right to them if they don't tell them. Those secrets are, are theirs for reasons that are allowed them to make it. So I don't know what you found, but it must be pretty powerful. It must be pretty powerful.
1: Thank you so much. This has been remarkable. Um I had a couple questions. One was, you referred to your dad as, as believing that you needed to uh, you needed to stand on your own two feet financially. However, in the book, you mentioned that he was having his own financial problems, and I'm wondering if. That was the Shonda, that exactly. he didn't want to admit, you know, he he had this firm belief that his daughter should stand on her own two feet, yeah. when in, really, in reality, he couldn't afford to support you. You got is it. That, is That's that,
2: exactly it. it. Okay. My father was, as I said, performing Jewish masculinity. He was a lawyer. He wasn't a very successful lawyer. He went to the city in his three-piece suit, but he went to an office with one secretary and, and one office. He didn't go to work at, you know, uh, at Goldman Sachs, not Goldman Sachs, but the big law, and one of the big law firms, White and Case. He he didn't didn't, uh, fit the image that he was portraying. I never knew it. I thought my father was a great success. And my father was the first one to pick up the check when my parents went out. Um, My father, I, I was 16 when I entered Brandeis. And for him to set me on my own, he said, I'm paying the tuition room and board, you're on your own. I was on my own. And it made the, and it was the making of me. Well, that was a lie. I mean, he was on his own. He taught Hebrew schooling two brothers with boys. He was, but that was because he had to be. He came from poverty. I came from a lawyer a family, a family headed by a New York lawyer. Why was I the only one at Brandeis that I knew I had to have three jobs? In order to be able to buy, you know, an ice call. Because my father really didn't have the money that he performed as his uh, you know, his he was saving faith that he couldn't admit he, he wasn't successful. But in the letters that were in the shopping bag, he remonstrates against my mother because she used a three cent stamp when she could have used a penny stamp. It all comes out in the letters. My father was worried about it and he hadn't low-level clients, and he was worried that he wasn't going to make his bills. And, you know, when my mother died, my father sold our house. We had a, a had a seven-room house at that point in Jamaica, States. We had moved up in the world because he had a very good year one. once we moved there in 1950. <laughs> he sold the house, and he gave away all my mother's stuff. He never offered anything to me, and he sold off everything in my room. I had a room of my own. He sold it all while well, I was at at, at, at Brownlee's my freshman year. Um, my father wasn't a sentimentalist. He, he went into a one-bedroom apartment. I thought, you know, what an insensitive thing to do is sell my stuff. And now I'm in a day bed in the hall. And the he's in one bedroom, and I'm in the hall. And then I discovered he didn't have money for more than a one-bedroom apartment. He sold the house to live on there money. I didn't know that. It was all a secret. Everything economic in our household, financial, was a secret. He never told my mother what he earned. And my mother had a knipple exactly because a knipple was a little you know secret savings account you keep in your in your lingerie drawer. uh, Because he put her on an allowance. She never was you know on her own. She was dependent on him like a child. Um, I have another question too.
1: You mentioned about um, uh, J.K. Rowling and the the cancel the culture, word, the, the, the cancel culture, the disappearing of the the word woman. So, what do you think about this um, now that a non-binary pronouns and all of that thing? I mean, is that making things transgender? And you know, does that does that feed into that, or is it just making is it just blurring the lines or what do
2: you feel about that? I feel that people should be free to be you and me. I feel that people that it, it's no, it doesn't it's no skin off my nose if you choose to use they. Why why am I threatened by you choosing? I have to train my ear because I'm an English and American Lit major, and I'm not used to how you know they is going. I'm not used to that sound. But beyond that, you know. And my issue with the disappearance of the word women is that there are still issues that are specific to women and we have to just deal with them. And everything else that affects all people or transgender kids or I'm for being who you are. And it's not a problem to me if two men marry or two women marry. What is it to me? What am I objecting to here? You know, some moral standard. It doesn't affect anyone else but the two of them. So I don't have a problem with all the the advances in terms of expanding the spectrum, the gender spectrum. I'm just, I hate the stereotypes. I hate the sexual rigidity. I hate the pink and blue ghetto. I hate all that stuff,
0: but I'm perfectly comfortable with somebody using me, them, whatever. So a last question for you uh, tonight is, you know, there's a lot to be pessimistic about. <laughs> there's a lot, Jews are particularly good about worrying. You know that, Joe. There's, yeah, there's a lot to worry about, um, but what what is something that gives you a sense of hope today about the future of humanity? <laughs> and what is something unique to Jewish wisdom or the Jewish peace people that also gives you a sense of hope of what we're going to contribute to that next day?
2: Well, you know, it's a platitude to say this, but what gives me hope is my six grandchildren because I know their lives so well. They're activists and they're they're aware of problems even if they're privileged. And they've chosen paths to their life that I admire. I know not everybody's like my grandchildren, but I also know a lot of other young people. And I know young women in the feminist movement who are continuing the struggle. It doesn't have the same nomenclature, as our generation did. It doesn't have the, the same. Uh, they're not lying down in the streets. They're not marching on Fifth Avenue. Because at this point, feminism is like the fish in water. It's all over the place. If Beyonce, Beyonce is a feminist okay. and Madonna is a feminist and says it outright, I mean, any, any of them can be feminist. And they are. They're using the word. They're not saying any longer, I'm not a feminist, but I believe in equality. I like that. No sexual harassment. They recite the entire feminist agenda and they didn't like the word. Well, now they like the word. Who cares? I don't care what, as long as they're dedicated to to the agenda itself. I will tell you that uh, one of my favorite jokes is uh, What's the difference between a Jewish optimist and a Jewish pessimist? The Jewish pessimist says, things can't get it.
0: Worse, the optimist says, oh, yes, they can. Well, it is say you have done such a great service tonight. uh, really a just marvelous book and presentation about human vulnerability, about American Jewish history, about Jewish identity. And as important as your story is, we want to invite you all to think about your personal stories as well. And your family stories and your uh, how you tell your story. We have dessert in the room next door and wine. We hope you'll join us. And I only want to pitch one event. I only want to pitch one event because every night we have a volunteer opportunity, every day we have a class. Um, there's so much to do but we have Daryl Horn coming to town in a, in a few months, and we're doing it with Congregation Beth Israel, CBI and Scottsdale Arts about her book, People Love Dead Hughes. Really important book, really important topic. We hope you'll join us.